From the School of Education at the University of Wisconsin-Platteville, this is the Proud Rural Teacher Podcast, and I'm your host, Jessica Brogley. Support for this podcast comes from the Rural Schools Collaborative, a national nonprofit committed to strengthening the bonds between schools and communities. Funding is part of the collaborative's I Am a Rural Teacher campaign. You can learn more about RSC online at ruralschoolscollaborative.org. This episode of the Proud Rural Teacher podcast is brought to you by Soundtrap for Education. Soundtrap for Education is a cloud-based sound recording tool that allows for easy capture, editing, and collaboration. Soundtrap for Education is the preferred audio recording tool of the Proud Rural Teacher Podcast. Find out more about Soundtrap for Education at soundtrap.com forward slash edu. Hi, everybody. Today's episode is packed with interesting information. Matter of fact, just about everything was new to me. If you've ever wanted to ponder ways to connect students with the great outdoors and environmental education, stay tuned. This will be quite a treat. Today you're meeting Megan Barnett Schimmick, a high school science teacher from Pine Island, Minnesota, and Jesse Barnett, a student-based faculty member in public health at the University of Minnesota, Rochester. Their collaborative spirit and commitment to environmental awareness, public health, and place-based education is commendable. Today you'll learn about the collaborative partnership between their students. It's quite an impactful experience. Megan and Jesse, thanks for joining me on the podcast today. We're so glad to be here. Let's learn a little bit more about you. Who are you and what do you do in education? So I'm Megan Schimmick and I, I teach High School Biology and the Biomedical Sciences program at Pine Island High School. And I am Jesse Barnett. I am a student-based faculty member in public health at the University of Minnesota Rochester. So I teach um, from introduction to public health all the way through eight different upper level courses to expose students to um, the wide field of public health. And I really enjoy working with uh, Megan on some collaborative work we do with mentorship in the environment in our region of the U.S. Very interesting. So, Jesse, we're going to come back to your piece of this story in just a bit. First, I'd like to understand Megan's work just a little bit more first. So, Megan, describe Pine Island to me. What is the community like? Help us form a visual and an understanding of your place. Yeah, I'm happy to do that. And if Jesse wants to chime in at any point, she can. Um, Pine Island is located in southeastern Minnesota. We've got approximately 3,400 people that call Pine Island home. And we're located about 15 miles north of Rochester and about an hour or 60 minutes south of the Twin Cities. Um, Pine Island was actually given its name from a Native American term, Wazawida, and that translates to Isle of Pines. Um, we have the Zumbro River that flows right through our town and we're home to the start of the Douglas Trail, which is a 13 mile, approximately 13 mile recreational trail that connects Pine Island to Rochester. Um, it's got a paved trail for walkers and bikers, and then there's more natural trail for um, horseback riders, um, ATV vehicles, and anyone who just wants to try out trail running. Um, as I said, we're a small town. Our school averages about 100 students per graduating class. We are a rural community, yet we're only 20 miles from the Mayo Clinic. Um, and that 
proximity to the Mayo Clinic has quite an influence on our students and the types of courses that we're able to offer here. We do have a very strong FFA agricultural program. We also have very strong biomedical and technology programs. And I, I was thinking about this and I'd say that our community, we have the perfect blend of agriculture, healthcare, and technology professionals. Um, and with this, we're able to have a lot of opportunities for our students um, so that they can gain experience from many different types of pathways. And then just more about our community. A little interesting tidbit that a lot of people don't know is I had to research this to get the facts. But in 1911, a group of small dairies in Pine Island built a prize-winning world record 6,000-pound cheese. <laughs> and because of this, our annual festival every June is called the Cheese Festival. Very good. Yeah. <laughs> Um, how about your classes? How big are your classes and how many different, uh, I guess, what's your teaching load? Yeah, so um, new this year, we're on a block scheduling. So we've got four blocks each day. Um, in, a, in a typical semester, I have three sections of sophomore level biology, um, two sections of the first of the biomedical sciences courses, which is called Principles of Biomedical Sciences. And then I have one section of human body systems. And then every other year, we offer the capstone course, um, which is called medical interventions. I noticed that you're also the advisor of the Roots and Shoots Environmental Club. What is that? Yeah, so Roots and Shoots is actually a global organization that was founded by Jane Goodall. Um, there's, there's local chapters throughout the whole world. And our school adopted um, that name to be our school's environmental club. Um, the mission of Roots and Shoots is to promote positive change for people, for animals, and for the environment, and it combines service with learning. So specifically at our level, we do quite a bit of service activities. We do river cleanups. Um, students organized a clothing swap um, a couple years ago, and that's been, that's been a hit. Um, we've taught community edu education classes for elementary students, and we typically host Earth Day celebrations. So right now our students are planning a trash bingo um, <laughs> challenge where next week all students in the high school um, will be eligible, eligible to participate. And essentially their task is to go out and clean up an area um, outside, and they'll be looking for specific items. And if they're able to win a bingo, um, they'll be entered into a drawing for various prizes. And so not only service and learning, um, in addition to that, typically in non-COVID years, we take students on a three-day trip to Northern Minnesota, where we spend time at an environmental learning center, um, where they do team building activities, they get to know about each other and themselves. And they also take classes on various environmental education topics. And then a highlight is always an afternoon spent dog sledding in Ely. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's awesome. Yes, that sounds like a phenomenal club to belong to. Yeah. I also noticed that you're one of the instructors for the Big Woods, Big Rivers course at Whitewater State Park. So what's that all about? Yeah, that's right. So about 10 years ago, I became a Minnesota master naturalist. Um, 
being a biology teacher, biology is such a huge umbrella, but my, my true passion really lies in the environmental sciences. So I wanted to be able to do more with that. So I took the course, um, the Big Woods, Big Rivers course at Whitewater State Park. I loved it and then went on to, to take the instructor training course. And I've been co-teaching um, the Big Woods, Big River course through Whitewater State Park for I think five or six years. Um, the program itself is uh, sponsored, sponsored through the University of Minnesota Extension and the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources. And the big idea here is that anyone can be a Minnesota Master Naturalist volunteer, anyone who has passion or interest in, in the environment. Um, all you need to do to become one is to register for a course. Um, each course has a curriculum that's tailored to a particular region in the state. There's included hands-on field experiences, and then each participant um, carries out a capstone project that they design and carry out. And then to remain, or to maintain your membership, you're asked to log um, 40 volunteer hours each year, and then participate in advanced training activities. Um, I, like, I, like I mentioned, I love the program, and it's actually because of the Minnesota Master Naturalist program that I was introduced to the Minnesota Frog and Toad Calling Survey, um, where I learned essentially to how to speak frog and toad, where you learn all, they, they send you the resources so you can learn all of the calls of um, native frog and toad species within our state. And then we would go out and track um, where's, where different species are within the state. And so you're just, with that program, you get to meet and network with a lot of like-minded individuals. And I've been able to learn about a lot of different citizen science projects that I've been then able to carry over into the classes that I teach at the high school level. Sounds like such a wonderful opportunity to network with like-minded people, but then also learn some things that I can say I certainly had no idea that there was that you could learn about frog calling. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's great. It's awesome. And so let's dig deeper into a collaboration. Um, I'm new to learning about the eco-literacy school. So this has just been really enlightening to me. And Jesse, this is where you come in too. So tell me about the eco-literacy school collaboration. You two both teach it together, correct? We do. Um, Eco-Literacy School is actually an acronym, and the word school stands for Students Collaborating in Health-Oriented Outdoor Learning. So it's the idea that Megan and I both have health science students, and our commitment to our students and our region is that by the time our students graduate, when they're involved in this program, they'll have a deep and enduring understanding of how our environment impacts our health and vice versa. Um, how we as humans are a product of our environment and how important place is to the health of populations and communities and even um, the role of place in health disparities work and health equity. So Eco-Literacy School is a mentorship program where students at UMR who are interested in public health leadership form a mentorship relationship with Megan's students who are in biomedical sciences and biology and they take a course together. So they have shared curriculum that they work through in the semester. And then each group, the high school students and the college students also have a set of their own distinct curriculum as well. 
and they partner on projects. They, they fulfill these individual roles that they have. So for example, at UMR, students have leadership roles like the water and hydration specialist, air quality monitoring leader, team building expert, uh, mentorship leader, and each student has a role. So when they're a team, they kind of make a miniature health department. So they're working with each other and they're also doing their individual project to represent their role in working with their high school mentorship pod in order to kind of bring all of this to life. Um, one of the best parts is they have mentorship pods, which may be a weird word, and it's um, a small group of college students, so two or three, that is kind of potted together with high school students, a few, two or three, so they can still form that strong near-peer mentorship bond, but the intimidation factor is decreased a little bit, so you're not the, it's not a one-on-one -on -one relationship, and um, students can kind of gravitate towards others in the pod that they find commonalities with and have a more rich and robust experience in mentorship. And we, we also have two in-person field experiences that we operate. It's a semester-long course, and students get together twice for um, multi-day field experiences in our wonderful upper Midwest region at state parks. We go to Tedaguchi State Park a lot of the time when we're in a more traditional non-COVID year. And then we use our local resources like Whitewater State Park and um, some really great river guiding services in Wabasha to get students out and about. They can not only practice their role and deliver this implementation of their project plans, but they get to form really strong applied learning and hands-on environmental learning experiences with their high school mentees in the other way around. Mm -hmm. Megan, what are your thoughts? I think I think you did a really great job. Um, like Jesse said, over the since since that we've started the program, it's been an evolution. Um, we did start our program with a one-to-one -one ratio, one one high school student with one college student, um, and then with that, there was definitely the intimidation factor. So that's one of the main reasons why we moved to the pod format. Um, well, and also you mentioned so we started the program. I want to say five, maybe five years ago, and in the beginning we as instructors were delivering most of the field experience content ourselves. And we have a third co-instructor, Dr. Kristen Osiki, who's a public health faculty member at UMR. And we were able to collaborate together as a team of three and really flip that relationship. So when students are in their leadership roles, they are developing some of these activities and some of these implementations that they get to do on their field experience themselves. And we were able to, instead of just taking out that instructor is the wise leader piece that we struggle with sometimes and putting in this idea of students are the leaders of their own learning, really. Mm -hmm. um, we're just facilitators and putting that piece in and that has evolved so strongly over the past four years. We do have strong content and curriculum, but the students get to take their role and run with it. Mm -hmm. and bring that to the table. And that's been one of the most powerful evolutions as they explore our national natural resources in this region of the US. So the, the course would start, uh, is it a semester long partnership, right? Yes, so we run this course each fall. Um, it's officially been a course at Pine Island High School for two years and at UMR for, is it three years now? I think four maybe three as a course and then four as a four credit experience so we've had students get credit for four years but for three of those it's been an actual course versus yeah. a corrected study 
Yeah, and so with that, we've been able to add to the rigor and the content, mm -hmm. um, and we've really been able to make it what it is. How do they get to know each other? Yeah, so that is one of the things that a student brought to the table. Um, I think three years ago, we had a student named Sonia, and she was the mentorship leader. Like that was her role on the UMR side. And she had had experience as an intern at Mayo Clinic. And she had had success using a software program called um, Slack, which is like a communication program at Mayo. And her idea was, what if we brought this component in to eco-literacy school? Because our high school students, um, everyone is so busy, but this is also so important. And in her working life, she was like, Slack is how we get it done. We are able to connect every day. We can do fun things like emojis and little conversations. And so this student was actually the one who brought this in as a viable option for how we're going to form and maintain this mentorship relationship leading up to our field experiences where students get to interact in person and then they maintain it through the next one and then they conclude the course with this like viable online mentorship structure that is guided and they have they have guided prompts and they have spaces to discuss and they do some um, synchronous discussion on Zoom and things like that. But it's like a fun online space for them mm -hmm. to do their thing. And this year we're exploring a different software tool um, as a potential for that interaction as well, just because another student was like, I found this one and I think it might be really great. So we're going to see what we can do. That's great. Um, so what would you consider are the major course outcomes. At the end of this experience, students will? So our major outcome uh, on the UMR side and also on the Pine Island side, but uh, kind of a, a little bit earlier in the Pine Island student career trajectory, uh, at UMR, we all of our students are in health science. We have two majors and they're both health science focused. So we're really committed to creating and encouraging health professionals, whether, whether they're in public health or clinical health or allied health, that have this deep and enduring understanding of the environment's impact on our health. So when they go out and they become a leader in their profession or a leader in their working group, they can always have a sense of how do we think about the environment in all policies, the environment in all workplaces, the environment in all potentially even diagnostic thinking processes with patients. Um, and be informed voters, be citizen scientists for their community, and kind of have these durable memories of what this meant to them, how they were able to share this environment health connection with their mentees, and bring that forward into their profession and kind of be, be someone who brings us into regular life. Like, why aren't we thinking about this environment health connection all the time in everything we do? That's the mentality we're hoping students move forward with in their own way. Um, on, on both sides, high school and, and college. But I think that's the big picture for our UMR students as well. Yes, and then an added benefit for high school students is interacting with um, current college students who are living their potential dreams. Um, they're able to ask the questions that maybe I'm too old to answer. Um, unscripted, like what, what should I do as a summer job in high school that can help prepare me or help me get ahead um, to be more competitive for colleges or jobs in the future. Um, yeah, and, and just the whole idea of place-based education, like we're here right now, and what can we learn from that? Mm -hmm. And, and that, that we're, 
you go ahead. Well, I was, and that particular location has significance and getting kids to unpack that, right? So important. It's something we don't um, always do enough of. Mm -hmm. Go ahead, uh, Jesse. Well, and I was going to bounce off of that a little bit too. Our students are so, the students that Megan and I work with, work with do have access to relatively consistent technology, um, which is not the case in all places. And it really is a valuable asset to them. Um, and I know that in other locations in Minnesota and the nation as well, we're trying to increase access to tech for student learners, but our students have access to it all the time for the most part. And so we're in a space with our particular group of how can we learn from our environment and from our place and from others when we're not always engaging with technology, kind of taking some of that, um, Megan's phrase is green hours. How can we have students get green hours and disengage from mm -hmm. some of these, these tech challenges that are impacting our students' mental health and their long-term well-being and trying to ingrain this idea of nature as potential um, mental health and physical health as an asset in those ways and really critically reflecting on how we engage with technology when it's helpful to us and when it's helpful to us to disengage mm -hmm. as well and get out into our green spaces with peers and and just have fun in a way that's maybe not as connected as we are all day every day as humans. Yeah, I, and I would say that one of the biggest challenges is um, our field experiences are really what make our program what it is, but also it forces students to disconnect from all the schoolwork. They have to take off work and it, that's super hard for them to do. Um, but seeing them as they progress through a weekend in nature is an experience like no other. So let's dig into one of those field experiences. Can you describe what it's like? Oh my gosh, there are so many things to say about field experiences. Um, I think we all begin our field experience, no matter if it's our local experience or if we're able to do a multi-day overnight where we live outside full-time. The first thing you start with is butterflies in your stomach um, on our side too, because we've been preparing for this for weeks and weeks. The students know each other, they've seen each other, but they're going to interact together for the first time. And the first thing we start with is what to bring. That is what our students always want to know. And Megan and Kristen Osiki and I have been working for the past five years to create and organize like a cache of supplies because not all of our students have, this is a new experience, they're stepping out of their comfort zone and we want to be able to communicate clearly, you don't have to have done this before. You don't have to have a sleeping bag or a ground pad or anything. We will make it so that you can make it possible. Um, so students have a pack list, they're packing everything. We say bring way more than you think you might need. Um, and that's always the first step of, of organizing all of the gear to survive for three days in a disconnected way. And Megan's classroom is an explosion of gear and supplies. And her students have these logistical roles on the high school side of making this possible. Um, Megan, will you share that? I love that part. Yeah, so like Jesse said, luckily I have two classrooms and one of them is just the eco-literacy school storage room. Um, and for about a week before we go, my students are working tirelessly to make sure we have all of the equipment. They take a day where they go outside and they set up all of the tents to make sure that all of the components are there. They spray them down with the waterproof coating. Um, 
and the responsibility is really on them. They organize everything. They assign tent tent groups um, so that, again, when we get there and students are having questions, instead of them always coming to us, they're able to go to each other. Because within each mentorship pod, there is a leader who is aware of what's happening and when. Um, but yeah, with all the tents, we have all of the camping stoves. We've got um, some tents that we've been able to get that serve as outdoor kitchens because fall weather in Minnesota is anything but predictable. Um, there's been one, one fall we woke up to snow on all of the tents and all of our little propane gas tanks were frozen. And so it's just, it's part of the adventure. Um, expect the unexpected. Yeah, and we would not have been able to have this like baseline amount of gear that we need to be successful without our community. Um, we're always looking for grant funding. We have had great response from our community to build up this like storage space of essential gear. And we've even had students be so creative in how they've helped us, helped us get things. Two of our tents were rescued from a landfill and they were brand new. Um, one of my former students is family member is a landfill operator in Minnesota. And he put out the call and said, if you see anything that would help us with this program, and that family member fished out these two tents from the landfill before they got covered up and and we were yeah, they're, the, they're the best tents we have in our collection oh, and they wow. were just thrown away so anytime we can find a resource that would have been that would have been discarded and we can make it valuable that's part of our commitment as well some of our things are new and we use them every year and some things were rescued and we put an extra tarp over them <laughs> to make sure <laughs> they're going to be fine but um it's a powerful message to our students to always be looking for something that can help the next generation of eco-literacy school students be fully participating. Okay. Yeah. yeah so and, and with that too, we don't ever want cost to be a barrier. So this program, we're able to run it free of cost to students and camping is an expensive sport. And so a lot of students, they've never camped outside. They've never, um, some of them have never walked on uneven surfaces. And so, we have made it our mission to be able to provide the materials that are necessary for a student to participate and have fun. Yeah, and for students to, because I think out feeling safe in an outdoor space is really a privilege. It should be a right, and it should be something that is universal to all, but it really is a privilege to have those types of experiences and feel safe. Um, and that's something that we're committed to as a large group, and we have these conversations with our student group that comes with us because we do have students for whom this is completely new and they're about to like step into this world of of um wonder and privilege really to be out in nature and so we try and take care of each other um so once we're packed we if we're lucky enough we get to use the trailer for the bus if the football team hasn't claimed it already because there's only one <laughs> um if we're not lucky we have a bus that's just unbelievably packed with everything <laughs> you can imagine um, and we hit the road if we're going up north. Um, and our students take such good advantage of this bus trip. You would think that a six or seven hour bus ride is is not worthwhile time, but they use it to get to know each other because this is their time to be together when they're not assembling a tent or on a hike. Um, they can be focused in this way. And some of them will even start delivering their, their project implementation on the bus. Like they'll have like nature-based scavenger hunts as we ride with prizes. Um, they'll have mentorship pod discussions. Then we also have downtime for homework because students are like, I still do have homework. Um, <laughs> and yeah, we hit the road. So Megan, what happens when we get there? Ooh. 
And then we get there and it's a whirlwind of an adventure as our home becomes our home. Um, tents everywhere, tarps everywhere, yeah. but it all comes together. Everyone works together. They've all got their roles that they're carrying out. Yeah. Um, and oh, and we use cart insights. So yes. the house parks, and then we still have a ways to go to get all of our gear where we need to go. And this is the first time our students really coalesce into this group because it takes away a lot of the awkwardness of meeting someone in person for the first time because it's like we have this many hours before it gets dark. How are we going to accomplish the task? And it's just the best like two feet in icebreaker you've ever seen. For sure. Assemble a campsite. Yes. A massive campsite. Yeah. Team building at its greatest. Yeah. <laughs> Especially oh when every tent is a little bit different. So you can't just look at what the next group is doing and follow that because it's a different tent. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And all the student roles start to come alive too, because we have an emergency preparedness coordinator as a student role and they're setting up um, like hand washing stations with real soap and water so we can practice, like practice disease prevention and all these things that bring public health and biology into one place. Um, yeah. And then we usually do a campfire dinner and have a little bit of like, okay, we did it. Um, <laughs> And usually it's raining because <laughs> that's, how, that's it goes. how Minnesota goes. So, yeah. And it, it also usually rains on the morning just before we're about to pack up. So everything gets oh. nice and wet. Yeah. So then when we come back, we reset up all of the tents to let them air dry. And yeah. So yeah. it's a good labor of love. And when we're on our field experience, we really maximize every moment. We have night hikes. Um, we have student times for them to facilitate their own projects. We drink out of Lake Superior after proper filtration and processing of water and water quality and all that discussion. Um, students really engage with their state in a way that a lot of them haven't done before. Yeah, and, and one of the very first activities that Jesse leads is one of my favorite and I think is a, is a favorite for most students. It's called the Cat Hole Relay. You didn't. I did. It's important. And it's one of those really great examples where we're connecting health and the environment. So Jesse, would you like to talk about what the cat hole relay is? <laughs> I would love to. So even though this is a podcast, nobody can tell, can share what this is with anybody else. So once you hear this podcast listeners, just keep it to yourself. So <laughs> the the role, the podcast, the cat hole relay, like Megan said, it brings together public health, an incredibly effective icebreaker for living in nature for three days um, and like basics of disease prevention and like just good trail hygiene and being a good trail citizen. So the first thing we do is we ask our group of students to go out into nature, wherever we are in the trail, and find an object that they resonate with. And it should be about three to eight inches long, um, maybe five to eight inches long. So students take this moment, we present it as kind of like a, a take a walk on your own, go, go connect a little bit. So they go out, they find their object, and they usually come back with pine cones, a pine needle, a stick, some a students, a boulder. Some students forget the parameters and they come back with like a log covered in mushrooms. Um, and then we, we circle up and each student shares their object they found and why they connect with it which is really profound. You learn so much about your students in this way. And so we make sure we respect that engagement. And then when we get around the circle, 
we tell students that this item that they found represents their poop. Their what? <laughs> their poop, like a, <laughs> a fecal deposit. So for the students who didn't follow the rules, they're holding this giant log. <laughs> or like a huge boulder, and they're like, oh, no. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so um, all this to be said, we start talking about um, using the bathroom in nature, how to do it safely, how far away to be from a water source, how to dig a cat hole or a place to deposit what you're depositing, how to cover it up safely, and then how to sanitize your hands so that um, nature is happy with you, your peers are happy with you. And we also get into the discussion of when we have large urban areas and we're looking towards sustainability and population growth, what does this mean for processing the waste of humans in huge ways for the environment? Because it's almost the same natural process. It's just magnified and expedited. So really cool conversations that we have. Um, so to finish the cat hole relay, students practice digging their cat hole. They make sure they're far enough away from water and see what the ground surface is like. And then they have two teams and they have to place their item, their found item in between their knees and scoop <laughs> to the cat hole and make sure it's in the cat hole so they go back and tag their teammate to kind of keep the cycle going. Wow. And then the last the last person in the relay is responsible for covering up the cat hole, making sure that there is no trace um, before they make it back to the starting line. Yeah, and if they miss the cat hole, they have to find a stick and golf their deposit into the cat hole and then put the stick in the cat hole too. So we're really making sure that our practices are, are stringent, but it's hilarious. It's just, it is just, it represents all the, the fun that you have to do to break through to be safe when you're living in nature for three days. So, mm -hmm. yeah. I'm sure it's quite impactful as well and, and definitely a memory. Absolutely. And it takes the awkwardness out of being the first person who has to go to the bathroom in the outdoors. <laughs> so we, we have little bath or bathroom kits. And if a student needs one, they just say they need the kit and no questions asked. Um, they go do their thing and we, we, we move on. Uh, I honestly just real as I was listening to you, it just dawned on me that, wait a minute, there's no bathrooms up there. Yeah. Love it. Yeah, in our what? in our group campsite, we have a shared vault toilet, but we're out and about during the day most of the time in places that may not have a vault toilet or other facilities, and we want students to feel like they can go when they need to go. So, yeah, we should play some time. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> what else do you do up there? Where? Wait, where is up there? Up there is up by um, Silver Bay, Minnesota. It's up on the North Shore of Lake Superior. Okay. Um, we've been really lucky in that we've been able to partner with the park system. And we've been able to work with Kurt Mead, who is one of the naturalists up at that park. And he spends the day with us. Um, students, we take them canoeing. They're able to go fishing. They learn about uh, biological magnification and the importance of um, testing for mercury in waters and the implications of that. Um, they get to make their meal over campfires and they use the little pudgy pie makers, which is a first time for many of them. Yeah, we do, um, we do a lot of active learning. So we do a lot of um, hiking, hiking experiences where we stop multiple times on our hike, um, not only to make sure that, that 
hikes that may be strenuous are more accessible to all students of all paces, but we use those those little pauses as as learning times. Like for example, we also partner with a third grade classroom, third grade science class, and one of our students' tasks is to take a basically a middle school activity about plants and how plants seeds move and they kind of distribute their seeds in the environment and adapt it for third grade learners. So we take that challenge and we bring that outside where there are seed pods and there are trees and there are leaves. So we'll do a hike to a destination where we want to go, but we'll pause at certain intervals and students will like get that packet of middle school material and start brainstorming with their pod of how would we, we bring this to third grade? And then they get to pick up seeds and throw them and start making basically a lab manual for third grade. And then when they get back, we share those with our third grade teacher partner and she, we help her implement them in her third grade classroom. So lots of health literacy, lots of content tailoring experiences so that when students leave Eco Literacy School, they have experience sharing what they did with others, whether it's at the third grade level or a potential employer. And that's what we're hoping for. Yeah. And we also have some unstructured time too. Not a lot where that's something we're working on is building in more unstructured time so students can just connect and be how they want. That's one of our eternal challenges is fitting everything in. So how do the students do cutting from technology? Now that I understand where you're going, just how off the path, right? Um, how do they do disconnecting from their cell phones? They do a fabulous job. I mean, our, our weekends are so filled with activities. Um, we encourage them to have their phones with them so that they can be documenting their experiences mm -hmm. and taking mm -hmm. photos. But I would say that never have we had to ask someone to disconnect and come mm -hmm. back and join the group. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that's working in our favor in that is that there's not a lot of opportunities to charge phones. Mm -hmm. So the little trick of putting it on airplane mode so you can still take pictures, but you're not engaging on social media all the time is a really nice unanticipated way of encouraging students to take all the pictures they want for their projects, but to not always have messages popping in and distracting them from their outdoor experiences. So. I appreciate that feature so much because our students, they're just like us. They're like, oh my gosh, my battery. And that's so stressful. We don't want them to feel stressed out that they can't call a family member if they have to. So airplane mode is is the way to go. Yeah, and, and each of our, our students, they have a project that they're carrying out and they're expected to document that. And then um, Jesse's students put together um, scientific posters of their experiences and so, Technology with purpose, I would say, is nice. how we incorporate that. Yeah, mm -hmm. this past year we had to reinvent the experience completely because of the COVID-19 challenges. Mm -hmm. Typically we do an overnight experience for three days and then we have a local field experience for one day. And this year we had a local option or local field experience for both field experiences. We couldn't stay overnight. So students did get together for the three-day local experience, and then they went home every night. Um, and we also had a fully online option for any student who maybe wasn't feeling well or they really needed to not engage as a group, even though we were outdoor and social distanced. And we were so fortunate to have community partners who helped us make that shift. Oh my gosh they we were reached we reached out to some amazing people um 
David Motz, Motzenberger, who does nature bathing experiences and like really focuses on mindfulness in nature, um, helped us bent or was it bent paddle? Yeah. Writing company in Wabasha was able to step in and, and offer an excursion for our students. So it could be extremely exciting and beneficial, but COVID safe, which is such a challenge. Yeah, I mean, it was definitely a downfall to not be able to go up north, but the experiences were were right up there at that same level where when we came back, everyone was asking because they'd seen pictures of students kayaking on the backwaters of the Mississippi. And it was a really, really great experience nonetheless. It's great to see you move forward despite the challenges and still create opportunities. And it sounds like different opportunities that you wouldn't have considered otherwise. Well, and that's just it. Yeah, I mean, um, typically you think you need to go far away to have some sort of adventure. And that's not true. There's a lot of resources that are really close to us. It's just seeking those out and finding them. And we're just so thankful that they were willing to work and partner with us. So now that we're heading back to a sense of normalcy, I guess, this fall, for example, what do you hope to do or accomplish next year? At the high school level, our application um, period just closed and we have 10 really great applicants who are going to be part of the program in the fall. They're excited and ready to go. Um, as a teacher, my hope is that we can go on those extended field trips, field experiences to get the students outside working together and having an, having an experience that's one of, one of a kind and a little bit different than what it was this year. And on the UMR side, our student registration is still open. So we have applications coming in for the program. We have five students who've been accepted, and then we have more time for more students to apply and, and undergo the review process. So very exciting. We can usually take a maximum of 20 students because that's that's the year we have, and it's hard to, that's what we can support and be healthy and vibrant with it. So mm -hmm. that's usually our cutoff. I'm also hoping we can do an in-person field experience. Uh, I would love to to go back up to the Silver Bay area, and um, that's where my most optimistic heart lies. But I also know that we we need to make sure all of our students are as safe as they can be. And I feel like we had good success in creating a, a local program last year that was extremely memorable and so much fun. And students just they it's. It's different than what we've done in the past, but it felt like it was fully functional and they got so much out of it. So either way, I know it will be great, um, but it would be nice to to go back up to the North Shore for a little bit too, because we have so many students who've lived in Minnesota for a lot of their lives and have never been in that area. So if we can introduce a new place, it's always so much fun. Outside of supply donations, how do you secure funding for this program? Certainly, cost might be a barrier for some, so what's an example of uh, a way you try to alleviate that financial burden for students? We are always committed to making this program a no extra cost program for students who are in the courses, which is always a challenge, but we've had four years of success, so we're optimistic. And we do that through, through grant seeking and funding, but one of the best ways that we do it is our mentorship pods work the Pine Island High School concession stand together as a pod. So they like sling popcorn and do all the stuff to make sure that the school community has a vibrant snack place to go, but it is a blast. And the money that they make from those 
working event goes to the next year's classes bus transportation for field experiences. So that's great. Students who are experiencing this now are doing it because of the previous classes support. Um, because of COVID, we weren't able to do that this year, but we're so excited about starting that up again because it's a blast. It's just a great way to make the program more sustainable for students too. And just That's another awesome. opportunity for students to connect with one another. Mm -hmm. so at, at that point, they know each other. Um, sometimes they're doing this after the program has even ended, and it's just fun to have a, a mini reunion. Is there a place to go online where we can learn more about eco-literacy? So we have our own website for the eco-literacy school program, and it's www.ecoliteracyschool.com. Um, but there's also a resource that's the Institute for Eco-Literacy, and it's um, kind of based out of Berkeley, California. So if you really want to nerd out on the concept of eco-literacy and what it actually is, that's a great place to go to. We have a description and kind of some introductory uh, information about the concept of eco-literacy on our eco-literacy school site, but it's also a great, you can just Google eco-literacy and go to town and really dig in on sustainable communities and the importance of natural cycles and natural processes in human futures and human sustainability in urban environments, et cetera. Megan and Jesse, thank you for sharing your experiences and collaborative spirit in environmental education in the Driftless. Your work is much appreciated and so very amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. The Proud Rural Teacher Podcast is hosted and produced by me, Jessica Brogley, with the School of Education at the University of Wisconsin-Platteville. The theme music was created by undergraduate and secondary English education major, Simon Yan. Our commercials were recorded by the recently graduated and future science teacher, Max Fromelt, and the undergraduate STEM education major, Maddie Lund. Be sure to subscribe to the PRT podcast and visit us online at proudruralteacherpodcast.com. If you have an episode suggestion or feedback, please leave us a speak pipe message on our website. We want to hear your stories. Thanks for listening.